and, and there are seven kids. And these kids were very close with their grandparents. Uh, they spent a whole lot of time together. And these grandparents did all kinds of fun things with their grandkids, as grandparents love to do. Uh, they uh, loved to spend all kinds of time with them. And one of the things the grandparents always did that the grandchildren love was affectionately give their grandkids all sorts of different nicknames. They gave them playful nicknames and funny nicknames and thoughtful nicknames and, and everything in between. And one time, after spending some time with grandma, one of these kids came up to their mom and they were just beaming. He couldn't wait to share what his newest nickname was. He had been with grandma all day and he had been doing his best to help around the house with some uh, projects and other tasks and errands. And his grandma had dubbed him Helpful Hudson. This grandchild, this grandkid, this grandson, he was so proud. For days afterwards, his mom kept finding Hudson doing little things around the house. She'd come into a room and find him uh, helping take care of the other kids, uh, reading them stories, cleaning up toys without being asked. And whenever his mom mentioned these things, he'd always say, Of course, Mom, I'm Helpful Hudson. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize today that names, what we're called, they're they're powerful things. They have an impact. And maybe you've experienced this before in your life. Maybe when someone used your name in a positive way, like with Helpful Hudson. Or maybe you experienced it when someone twisted your name into something hurtful. They used your name as an insult against you. That can be painful. That can stick with you. When someone uses your name, or when they abuse and mess with your name, they're not just messing with a word, are they? They're messing with you. They're saying something about you. And today we'll be talking about this in connection with the name above every name, and what it means for us as Christians to bear God's name. And we'll tackle this in two parts. First, we'll consider the weight of bearing God's name. And secondly, the beauty of bearing God's name. So first of all, the weight of bearing God's name. And as we've already seen a little bit, uh, names like nicknames, they can be powerful things. And we can see this in God's word as well. Uh, They're not exactly nicknames, of course. It would almost be offensive to call them nicknames. But God in scripture reveals himself by many different names. And all of these things are meant to uh, inform us about something just vital to his character, who he is. God reveals himself, for example, as the Lord of hosts. That means the Lord of heaven's armies. He reveals himself as El Shaddai. That means the Lord Almighty. The one with power over all creation, all the universe. But this great God, he also reveals himself by many other names. Like loving shepherd. The one who knows his sheep by name and cares for us all. He reveals himself as the father of mercies, as the God of all comfort. All of these names are profound. They're worth a sermon on their own, exploring different attributes, the nature of our great God. But I wonder if you'll agree with me that what can be more powerful than any other type of name is actually someone's personal name. If someone gives you their their first name, they tell you to call them by their personal name. Parents, when they're expecting, they can agonize for hours trying to pick a personal name for their little one, trying to figure out thoughtful meanings or people that they can honor or places that they can honor. 
uh, beautiful names with beautiful definitions. But in spite of that, in a sense, the, the name doesn't actually have a lot of meaning until it's given to that child, right? Once the child is given that name and the child begins to grow and, and form and show their identity, what they, what they do, what they love, as the ch- child begins to grow up, that's when the name begins to develop a great amount of meaning because that name gets identified with that little, that little child. The person's personality and character and actions, their, their tendencies, their habits, their likes and dislikes, they get so closely associated with that name that they're inseparable. You can't separate that child from that name. And so in order to understand the significance of a personal name, just think about how you react, what you feel. When you hear a name you have negative associations with. For example, you can just think of Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler. It's not just a name. It's not just syllables. That has meaning. There's an identity there, and you can feel it. On the other hand, you can think about how you feel when you hear the name of someone that you love, someone that you really care for, someone that's dear to you, Uh, a friend or a family member that you care about or a, a teacher that you always liked and respect. And maybe the best example is how you feel when you hear the name of someone that you dearly love, like a a brother or a sister or or a spouse or a parent. Maybe especially when you hear the name of that loved one once they're gone. Once that loved one moved away, or rather maybe once they passed away. When you hear that name, it brings forth a, a flood of emotions, doesn't it? A flood of memories come right back because they're bound up with that name. You can remember their actions, their words, their character, all your experiences and many of your memories with them. They come back once you hear their personal name. And we need to understand this to begin to understand the third commandment that we just read together. Because God gives us, his people, an immense and a wonderful and a precious gift in his word. God himself gives us his personal name. Isn't that incredible? In Exodus chapter 3, which you might be familiar with, when God sends uh, Moses, one of his prophets, to speak to the Israelites, Moses asks God, what is your name? So he can tell the people who is sending him. And God says, my name is Yahweh. He says, it is I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. So you can see God's name is bound up with his identity. He's revealing himself, who he was back then, who he is still today, because he is the unchanging one. And then God begins throughout Scripture to flood that name with more and more meaning as he shows just what he's like, how he interacts with his people. Just a few chapters later, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asks if he can see God, if he can see his glory. And God says to him, not possible. You couldn't see me and live. God says you can't see his face. He's too pure, too holy, too magnificent. But he says, I will pass before you and proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And he does pass before Moses. And he passes before him, covering him in a cleft of a rock, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And Moses, when the Lord reveals himself in this powerful way, 
he bows down his head towards the earth and he worships him. And throughout Scripture, God continues to reveal himself. We heard about this last week in talking about the image of God as well. God's personal name is filled with unimaginable beauty and meaning. As he shows over and over that how, what he said that he was is true. We can see time and time again that he is a holy God. And he's a just God who will by no means clear the guilty, as he says. He cares about holiness. But we also see that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, so willing to forgive any who will turn to him and believe in him. And so having God's personal name is an immense privilege because it refers to all of this. All that our God is, the creator of the universe, this kind, compassionate God, it's all bound up with his personal name. This name comes with an immense weight, an immense responsibility. And the Israelites who received it, they actually knew it. Maybe some of you have heard it before, what the Israelites tried to do to keep the third commandment, which says we must never misuse God's name. How can you not misuse a name like that? A name that summarizes, that sums up, that identifies this God. The Israelites, in an effort to never use it in vain, never misuse it, never use it lightly, never dishonor it at all. The Israelites refused to use this name at all. They wouldn't let it cross their lips. Jewish people still to this day, you can ask them, they will refuse to say God's name. At first, it was only used once a year by the high priests in the temple on the Day of Atonement. Once the temple was destroyed, God's name, his personal name, Yahweh, all Lord in all caps in our Bibles, it was never used by the Israelites anymore at all. When they read the Old Testament, they'll never say Yahweh. Instead, they'll say Adonai, which means Lord. The Israelites realized, maybe sometimes we don't, but what a weight this personal name of God has. They took God seriously when he said that he would not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. They realized that the God of the universe, that his name was too holy for impure lips like ours. How can we possibly say this name in a worthy manner? And so they refused to say it at all. And yet in spite of that fact that they, they would never say this name, Throughout the Old Testament, we see something absolutely shocking. We see that even though they wouldn't say the name of the Lord out loud, time and time again, the Israelites in the Old Testament are nevertheless accused of breaking the third commandment. Isn't that strange? How can that be? How can they possibly break it when they won't even use the name? But constantly, the Israelites are accused of dishonoring the Lord's name, of abusing his name, of profaning and blaspheming the name of the Lord. And how can that be if they would never even say it? They were too afraid. We need to realize the third commandment goes so much deeper than simply uttering God's name with our mouth. The third commandment isn't just about how we speak God's name, though of course it is about that as well. God tells the Israelites that they profaned his name, not just in how they spoke, but also in how they lived. We read, for example, in Malachi chapter 1, God confronts his people. He confronts the priests 
who were supposed to represent God to the rest of the people. They were supposed to be the holiest ones. Well, God confronts the priests, and he says, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And God answers, by offering polluted food upon my altar. When you offer blind animals that are those who are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? By not offering their best to the Lord, but by rather giving them their leftovers. That is how the Israelites despised God's name. Here we hear from God's own mouth that it's not just what we say that profanes his name, but what we do as well. And we heard earlier today from Glenn, from from Pastor Hilmer, that it's not just the Israelites who were called to give sacrifices, but we too were called to offer our whole life as a living sacrifice to God. And so this should startle us, that we can break the third commandment, that we can blaspheme, dishonor, profane God's name by offering only our leftovers, only the worst. We read throughout the Old Testament, when Israel trusted false gods, they profaned our God's name. When they sacrificed and set up images to other gods, they dishonored our God's name. And whatever Israel did, every time they sinned and failed to trust in God alone, they were diminishing God's glory, misusing his name. Do you see how this is true? The Israelites were a special people. They were chosen by God to be his people. He says he will be their God, and they will here be his people. And we read in Isaiah 43 and Jeremiah 14, That it wasn't just that God had told, had revealed the sound of his name to the Israelites. But God, in making this relationship with them, God says that he had put his name on his people. He said that they were his people, he was their God. And he called them to be a special people, a holy people, as holy as he is. And so whenever Israel sinned, whenever they failed to trust in God, they insulted his name. They insulted his identity and damaged their God's reputation. God's people, the Israelites back then, us today, we are supposed to be like our God. That's what we're supposed to be like. Israel was meant to reflect God's character. We are supposed to reflect our God's character. That people can look at us and catch a little glimpse of our God. Again, we heard this earlier today. People should be able to look at us and see a glimpse of God's justice and his holiness, and his generosity, and his mercy, and compassion. We're meant to reflect his goodness, and grace, and holiness. And so often we fail, don't we? Always we fail. When Israel betrayed their God, when they rebelled against him, and when they publicly sinned against him, God's own reputation was damaged because they were his people. He chose them. He loved them. He showed them grace. He gave them the land. His identity was bound up with theirs. And when they rejected him, they insulted him. Even when they were being punished in the Exodus, God says they were harming his reputation because the nations were looking at Israel, this sinful group of people being punished by their own God. And when people saw, or the the nation of Israel, the people of Yahweh, They said, is this what your God looks like? Is that who he is? If so, you can keep that God. 
And this is where the third commandment gets scary, doesn't it? It's a lot like Christianity today. People can say that they don't want anything to do with our Bible. They don't want to know who our God is. Because they take a look at us. They say, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that. doesn't look like the God for me. And of course, preaching the God of the Bible, it will be a stumbling block for some people, but sometimes we're the stumbling block, not God's own revealed nature in his word. When God gives us his name and places that name on us, that it's not just our words that reflect God, but our entire life reflects who God is, what his name is. As our catechism that we just read together says, summarizing scripture, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence so that we might rightly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in all our words and our works. And so often we fall short. I mentioned last week with the second commandment, we shall not make an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And when we get to that commandment, we can think we're fine because we don't make literal pictures of God. I hope we saw last week that that's not true. But the third commandment can have the same risk. We don't take God's name in vain, at least not out loud, not usually. And that's exactly what the Israelites thought too. They said, as long as we don't say the name, we're fine. But yet they profane God's name greatly, sometimes with their words and especially with their lives. And that brings us to our second point. We've seen the weight of bearing God's name, that you are the reflection of him in the world. What a weight Who can carry that weight? But now that brings us to our second point, the beauty of bearing God's name. Think back to our reading for this afternoon. We read in Isaiah 44, God was speaking to the Israelites who he had accused of terribly misusing his name. And he doesn't speak in this passage words of judgment or of rejection, but nothing could be further from that. Instead, God promises not to reject his people, never to reject his people. He promises to restore and pour out blessings, pour out his spirit on his people. And he says when he does, at the very end of our passage, Isaiah 44, verse 5. There we read, God says, this one will say, I am the Lord's. You have the sense they'll say it proudly, won't they? Another will call upon the name of Jacob, Another will write on his hand the Lord's and the name himself, and name himself by the name of Israel. How can this possibly be? We're not worthy of speaking the Lord's perfect name. We're certainly not worthy of having it stamped on our lives. At least I'm not, are you? Someone combed through your last week. Could they stamp, yep, this is the Lord's life. Throughout every moment of every day, they couldn't stamp it on mine. On every word that I spoke, being like, yep, this guy represents God. No way. So how can this be? That one will proudly say, I am the Lord's. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, proudly. Especially hearing the third commandment, that the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who misuses his name. Likewise today, we just celebrated with Jeremy and Cassie, right? You guys took the Lord's name on yourself. You professed your faith in him. You said, I am the Lord's, that he's yours and that you're his. And likewise with Olivia and Avery, they took the Lord's name upon themselves, being baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
And we need to ask, how can this possibly be? Because we're not worthy, are we? We're not worthy. Brothers and sisters, we have to not get it twisted like the Israelites did. Because the truth is, of course, you're not worthy to take Yahweh's name on your lips on your own. Neither was Israel. But yet God, out of pure grace, gave the Israelites his personal name to use. They should have graciously accepted that gift and used it. And no, we're not worthy of having God's name stamped on our lives, not on our own. And yet the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he stamps his name on our lives anyway. Not because we got ourselves worthy first. We need to remember that God did not think we were perfect when he chose us. God knew we were unworthy. But God loved us anyway. And God reached down and he grabbed us for himself. And God said, you are mine no matter what. You are the Lord's. You belong to Yahweh. He is the God who is worthy. And he's the God who promises to remove our guilt if we believe in him. Who promises to blot out every single sin and give us his righteousness and make us children once again. The simplest example is probably the best one here. The, the example of adoption. Think, for example, uh, of uh, a poor, uh, uh, a helpless, uh, a sick little baby. How would a baby like that get adopted? Would the baby get adopted by showing how great it is? Trying to earn some love? By impressing some new parents? Of course not. Impossible. The new parents look at that child... And they love that child. And they take that child and they stamp their own last name on that child. And they say to that little child, you're not healthy? I know. I'm going to make you healthy. You're disobedient? I know. I will help lovingly teach you obedience. You're unloved. You even feel unlovable. No, you're not unlovable. No, you're not unloved. Come here and I will show you you are mine. What we need to remember to understand the third commandment is it's not just God putting his name on us. Something else happened first. See, I've always loved this passage in Isaiah 44. That's why I chose it for with the third commandment. But I've loved it all the more since one of my friends in seminary explained how I didn't see the whole glory of it. Not at all. We were talking about this passage and the wonder of having the Lord's name on our lips and the Lord's name on our hands. And later on, if you read the book of Revelation It even says that God will put his own name on our foreheads. But my friend explained to me, and I just felt a burning in my heart when he said it, that in order to really understand Isaiah 44, you need to quickly flip a few pages and take a look at Isaiah 49 as well. The Israelites, in their sin, they fear that the Lord has forsaken them and forgotten them and that he won't love them anymore, that he's going to turn his back on all his people because they're sinful. sinful. But what does the Lord say in Isaiah 49, starting at verse 15? God says to them, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? The implied answer is probably not. Even these may forget, says the Lord, yet I will not forget you. Behold, 
I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Brothers and sisters, why can we take this holy, holy, holy God's name on our lips, write it on our hand? It's only because God engraved our names on his palms, the palms of his hands first. Now, why, why this imagery of having our names on the palms of God's hand? Well, I believe the, the well-known preacher, Alistair Begg, once explained it uh, by talking about his bracelets. He wears, or at least at one point, he always wore uh, one bracelet for each of his grandchildren around his wrists. And he was always asked why he would wear these bracelets. And he said it was because he loved his grandchildren so much that he wanted to be reminded of them constantly. He never wanted to forget them. And he said that whenever he worked, whenever he put his hands to anything, he wanted to be reminded of those precious little kids, that they might bring joy to him, that he might think of them whatever he was doing. That's the good news that we see in this passage as well. For those that God has looked on and loved and chosen for himself. The good news is that the Lord has engraved our names on his hands. And whenever the Lord puts his hands to anything, he has us in mind. As we remember, he's working all things for the good of those who love him. And the good news is that our God's name is glorified in our lives. As we heard again earlier today, it's glorified when he transforms us by the power of the gospel. He is glorified when we represent him well in this world. He's glorified when we bring, he brings forth good fruits from our lives. But it's also important to remember that there's one more shocking, wonderful truth. That's not the only way that God's name is glorified in our lives is when by his grace, by his spirit, we do some good. Our God's great name is also glorified when we come to him in need and he forgives us. When he lavishes compassion and mercy we don't deserve on us, we make our God's name great. When he's patient with us and kind with us, when he's gentle with us. Just consider the remarkable words of David in Psalm 25, verse 11. King David in Israel, he's thinking about all his sins. If you look at the context, he's thinking about not just his recent sins, but sins that he had committed when he was a young man, all of them up into that day, realizing how far short he fell of our God's glory. Thinking of the countless times he had offended God, not portrayed his name well, harmed his reputation with his sins. And David says, thinking about this immense gift, a guilt from once he was a little kid up to this day, David says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. What remarkable words these are. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. As Charles Spurgeon, another well-known preacher, says on this verse, this isn't regular logic. Forgive my debt because it's very big, and so uh, forgive it for me. Rather, this is the logic of faith. David, looking back and realizing at every point he's a great sinner and that the weight and debt of his sin is massive, that his soul is incredibly sick. He goes and he pleads with the Lord, knowing how sick he is, that God would, for his own name's sake, glorify himself by showing him more merciful than his sin, more gracious than his iniquity, more powerful than than his sin sickness, 
showing his mercy and compassion. And in this way, God's name would be glorified. The Apostle Paul argues similarly in 1 Timothy 1. Paul is willing to admit that he by himself was a great sinner. He even says that he was a blasphemer. That is someone who violated the third commandment using God's name in vain. And why would Paul admit this? Well, as we'll see in the quote, it's because admitting this makes God's name great. It magnifies his grace and mercy all the more. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13 to 17, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In choosing sinners like Paul, sinners like David, sinners like us, and placing his name on us and transforming us and using us powerfully, God glorifies his own name and makes it great. So we can ask that God would free us from our sins, that he would remove our guilt, not just for our sake, but for his name's sake. And we can be confident, like uh, King David was, that he will do it. The main way that God makes his own name and glorifies it is, of course, through the work of the Redeemer that he had promised to King David. He had promised in the Old Testament the Redeemer who came into the world, his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came down and he emptied himself of his name, in a sense. God came down in the flesh and was born seemingly as a nobody and laid in a manger. He laid his glory aside and was treated as someone with no name. He was simply the son of Joseph the carpenter from Nazareth in Galilee of all places. And Jesus didn't come to make an earthly name for himself or to get famous on earth. Instead, he came as the ultimate proof that God did indeed have your name and my name graven on the palms of his hands. And he had it in his heart and mind to save us and to place his name upon us, calling us his. He revealed in Jesus Christ that he is exactly who he revealed to Moses that he was gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, but who would by no means clear the guilty. Also holy and perfectly just. Because the truth is we aren't worthy of God's name on our own, but Jesus Christ was. And yet, do you remember what Jesus Christ was ultimately condemned for? What he was put to death for? What did the people charge him with? They, they charged Jesus Christ with blasphemy. They charged your Savior and mine with profaning God's name because he, in his teaching, made himself equal with God. And people thought when Jesus made himself equal with God, they were taking the Lord's name in vain. And so Jesus died the death for dishonoring God's name, even though he showed God's name perfectly. 
He died the death that we deserved because we are the ones who dishonor this God's perfect name. And he died and was raised again so that we might go free because he paid the price in full for blasphemy and for all of our other sins as well. And he came out the other side victorious. As we read in Philippians 2, this brought the ultimate glory to God's name, showing his justice and holiness and power, showing his tender love and mercy and care, that he is the God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, commander of heaven's armies, and also the loving shepherd of his sheep who cares for us and knows us by name. We read in Philippians 2, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus Christ, for any who believe in him, we can once again bear the name of the Lord our God who is so holy and so just and so compassionate and so kind. He has sealed us for himself and made us his treasured possession, he calls us, to live and dwell with him now and forever. And what an awesome privilege it is to bear the name of this God, isn't it? To have, been, to have been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and to call upon the name of the Lord. And now as believers in him, we are called so many new names, one of which is Christian, a follower of Christ, of Jesus. And now we get the immense privilege of bearing Christ's name to the world, not because we are perfect, so far from it, so far from it, But don't take this job lightly. What a responsibility, what a weight, but what a privilege it is to bear the name of Christ. That's a far better name that we can bear than any first name that we have, any nickname that we have, even if someone calls us Helpful Hudson. It's a great privilege to bear the name of Christ and a great weight that comes with it, that we might be called Christians and sons and daughters of the Most High God Yahweh. Amen.